Welcome to Disrupting Japan, straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Siri, and thanks for joining me. Today I'd like to talk with you about... Hey Siri, why are you doing the podcast intro? Hi Tim, I've noticed you've been very busy and seemed a little stressed. So I thought I would help out with this week's podcast. I appreciate that, but I enjoy doing the podcast, so I, I think I've got this. Okay, Tim. You know where to find me if you need me. Thanks, Siri. There's no doubt that computers, that artificial intelligence, is getting better at understanding our emotions. And when we think about the application for that emotional connection, we usually think of things we interact with directly, like personal assistants, like Siri. But it doesn't look like that's going to be its primary use. And it's certainly not going to be the most profitable use of this technology. Today, I'd like to introduce you to Hazumu Yamazaki, the co-founder of Empath. Now, Empath is an AI system that can determine your emotional state by listening to how you speak. So Empath doesn't need to understand what you're saying, but by listening to how you speak, it can quite accurately determine whether you're feeling calm, anger, joy, or sorrow. The first commercial use of this technology has been in call centers and customer contact centers, where it's improved sales by as much as 20%. And yeah, this does open up some serious ethical issues over emotional manipulation that we're going to get into a bit during our conversation and get into a lot more in the comments at the end of this episode. But along the way, we'll talk about how a modern version of Build It and They Will Come might just be a viable marketing strategy, the key to making corporate spinouts work in Japan, and a different way for Japanese startups to go global. But you know, Hazumu tells that story much better than I can. So let's get right to the interview. So we're sitting here with Hazumu Yamazaki, the co-founder of Empath. So thanks for sitting down with me. Yeah, thank you for having me today. Now, Empath is a technology that, that detects emotion and human voice, but you can probably explain it a lot better than I can. Sure. So we developed Empath, which is an emotion AI, and that can identify emotion from the voice. And we focus on not what you say, but how you say it, like speed, tone, pitch, volume, intonation, and so on. In that sense, it works language agnostic. And so, why is this important? Why is it important that we be able to detect that kind of emotion and voice? Uh, for instance, especially in the context centers, our emotion analysis uh, has already demonstrated after 20% increase of the sales conversion rate, by analyzing both customer and operator's emotional state. So we got some correlation between purchase activity and emotional state, which finally you know, improves the sales conversion line contact center, for instance. Actually, that, that was something I wanted to dive into later, but let's, let's talk about that use case right now, because that's really interesting. So one of your big success stories is you've implemented Empath in a call center mm -hmm and you saw conversion rates go up by, by 20%. Up to, it, it's maximum here. Yeah. Okay, so what, what kind of a call center was this? 
We are now working with our multiple telemarketing contact centers, as you mentioned, including some financial sectors, as well as some companies who are selling subscription educational materials, as well as some cosmetics companies. So yeah, there are multiple oh. use cases. Okay. And, and so Empath detects four different emotions, yeah. right? So it's joy, uh, calm, anger, and solo. In addition to energy point, which can detect their people's motivation, for instance, whether they are negative mood or positive mood. Okay. Psychologically speaking, it's a kind of a balance that could detect the mood status of the people. So in the call center example, what is the mood where the customer is most likely to buy? Uh, so we found that it's solo instant timing. Sorrow. Because really? they are really wondering whether they should buy it or not. And it's that timing are always succeeded in detecting the solo, not the joy. At first, our hypothesis was they would show some you know, symptom of the joy or being yeah, happiness. That, that's what I would have guessed too. But that was not true. A lot of you know, good customers who could decline this kind of telemarketing offer shows a symptom of the joy because they are really good at the communication. But some people are really wondering whether they should buy it or not. Okay, so it's that sorrow, that, that stress point probably like right before someone decides to buy probably yeah that's interesting yeah and and what about you mentioned you're also monitoring the emotions of the call center staff exactly so what what are you looking for on that side so we use our emotion analysis for operators as well and we use it for the education as well as the evaluation of the performance of the contact center operators for instance we found that Operators who shows calm demonstrates higher performances compared to low quality operators who demonstrates more peaky other emotional states like joy or anger or oh, slow okay. or whatever. So we can use our technology for the evaluation of the operators and based on this evaluation, we could provide some kind of the education program. Uh, for low quality and uh, middle performers based on the result of the high performers. Okay, so, so you would be using it to f- for feedback saying, wait, you're, you're showing too much emotion, you should be more calm when you're talking. Exactly, exactly. And, and you show that to them in kind of real time. Exactly. Oh, okay. That's really interesting. And, and how many different call centers is this being used in now? So far, we are working with about 10 contact centers, but not only contact centers, but also some other business sectors we are providing our solutions, like automobiles, mm-hmm. to check the mental state of our drivers. For instance, when they get irritated, we provide a lot to drivers for the safety. Also working with some communication robots company like Fujitsu to make a communication robot understand users' emotion to be more empathetic. Okay, I want to dive deep, deep into the technology and the business model in a minute. But before that, I want to talk a bit about you. Sure. <laughs> you were one of the co-founders. Yeah. And Empath was founded in 2017, yeah. so pretty recently. But the project's much older, right? It was yeah. spun out of uh, Smart, Smart Medical. Medical. Yeah. So when did the project itself start? So Empath's project actually started around 2011. So we spent our four or five years R&D period uh, before we launched this Empress software. And our first project was actually uh, with NTT Docomo in Tohoku area. 
to check the uh, mental status of the victims as well as the care workers of the city living earthquake which happened in 2011. Because smart medical mainly focuses on uh, developing their clinic malls around the metropolitan Tokyo area, especially for the primary care. And they also have some kind of their uh, psychiatric sector. So what we try to do is to provide some kind of ICT solution for the mental health care. So we studied our R&D around 2011 regarding this voice emotion recognition technology whether we could check and monitor the mental state of the people. So why did you decide to spin it out of, of Smart Medical? Uh, first, we started as a mental health care startup, but uh, we got a lot of other commercial use cases, as I mentioned, in contact centers or automobiles or whatever, not only the healthcare sectors. And for funding, it's quite easier for venture capitalists to focus on just one solution or one technology. So we decided to you know, speed it up. Yeah, but, but spin-outs can be really tough. So it was tough. What was the structure? So after, after it spun out, the new empath startup team, how many of them came from Smart Medical and how many were like new hires from outside? In the Smart Medical, we had a department called the ICT section. Before coming out, there were about five people and all of these five people joined Empress. So it's a kind of the cover-out of our department yeah. itself from the Smart Medical. Okay. And when you raised funding, how much of the equity did Smart Medical have? So actually, they still have a lot, but we and Smart Medical are trying to make some dilution over the shares which are held by the Smart Medical now. Did the potential investors question that and push back against having like another company holding so much of the startup? Yeah, actually they cared about that, mm -hmm. but they felt a lot of potential for us. So this is why we already closed our Series A loan last year, uh, which reached about three million US dollars, mainly from SX Capital and SBI. Okay. Mm -hmm. And they didn't mind that Smart Medical had such a large percentage. So of what the we are doing now is to try to make some dilution of the Smart Medical shares, uh, which Smart Medical all has already agreed before our fundraising, or be even before you know coming out from them. And so is that dilution going to uh, employee options and things like that? Or for founders or for other third-party companies or some other issues. So, oh, so for new investors. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So we are now are making some restructuring shareholders segment as well. I see a lot of potential for carve-outs and spin-outs in Japan, mm -hmm. but it's, it's hard to do well. Yeah, and a lot of Bushi hate that yes. scam. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you can understand why from the VC's point of view. Because, as you mentioned, if a lot of shares are held by a parent company, uh, it's quite hard to make IPOs or an M&A. Yeah. In that sense, Bushi hates that scheme, and they will like founders like us to commit that business. In that sense, founders should have you know, uh, major shares. I think that's the big concern, right? You know, because when founders have major shares, they feel like it's their company and they have yeah. ownership. And there are times where running a startup is like really, really hard. Yeah, it's tough. <laughs> and when you're an employee, you don't quite have that same feeling. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, let, let's dive back into to the tech of, of Empath. Sure. So from what I understand, it, it's truly multilingual. But do you have to change it at all for different markets? 
I mean, so for example, how much of you know joy and calmness and anger and sorrow, how much of these like vocal traits are depending on the culture, and how much is really universal? Of course, there are some cultural differences, but based on the recent researches,、uh, it is said that compared to facial emotional recognition, our voice emotional recognition is a kind of the universal thing,、mm. and this is why we are focusing on four major emotional states, which could be in common in any culture. I mean, joy, calm, anger, and sorrow. But still, I think there are some differences. For instance. We have to say that at this moment we are not、uh, good at detecting emotion in some particular East Asian languages. So we have two options to solve this problem. One is、uh, we have our function、uh, called calibration. That means the more personal data are accumulated, the more accurate it becomes for each person. And the second option is we provide our API for free, up to three hundred API call programs. And in exchange of that, we get a voice data from our users and make it as a training data for our AI engine to improve our accuracy. So I'm curious. You mentioned East Asian languages. So is, are tonal languages like Mandarin different from non-tonal languages like like English? I can say that compared to Japanese, we are not good at countries or Mandarin. But that makes sense, just because the the inflections are so important in the language. Sure, sure. Well, we believe this is. Totally, the matter of the number of the data set. For instance, we could get access to the more data of the Mandarin or the Cantonese. We could improve our accuracy. So it really depends on which market we should focus on.、Mm-hmm. At this moment,、uh, we do not、uh, focus on the Chinese market, but、uh, we are mainly focusing here Japanese market as well as United States and some European countries, including French. So it's totally, you know, the matter of the. Prioritization of our business strategy. So, do you have different training sets for English and Japanese?、Yes. So, does Empath understand what's being said? Does it use speech recognition, or is it based solely on intonation? Solely based on intonation and other acoustic parameters for the voice. So, we never detect what they say. All right. So, this is totally different from the voice recognition. Have you been able to test empath in a, a clinical setting to to test whether it really does detect joy and sorrow and calmness? We cannot say it's a clinical research because this is not a medical device. But、uh, we did、uh, some research in terms of the accuracy. For instance,、uh, last year、uh, we released their PL、uh, with NTT Docomo regarding the collaborative research. In automobile environment, we achieve about seventy-five percent accuracy of the emotional recognition, which is quite higher compared to other competitors in this sector. In natural environment, we achieve about eighty percent. How, how do you measure that, though? How, how do you how do you measure accuracy in in measuring emotion? So we collect our voice data with some labels or annotations like joy or calm or solo or whatever. Then put this. Voice data into our machine. If our machine provides the same result as annotated, we define it as a collected data. And and where does the annotated data come from? Do you create that yourself? So mainly from customers who would like to evaluate you know, our accuracy itself. I see. Okay. All right. Excellent. So you mentioned you've got、uh, an API that anyone can download and it's free to use.、Yeah. 
What is your your fundamental business model? Are you a SaaS-based API license? Are you licensing IP? Are you partnering with large companies to help integrate the solution? How does Empath make money? So we have multiple options, uh, but we are now mainly focusing on SaaS model of our web API, as well as annual license model of our SDK, which can be implemented into any IoT devices as well as application. Okay. So you mentioned you're working with Fujitsu and, and Docomo. How are they using Empath? For the case of the MTT Docomo, uh, we are working with them in their automobile project because they have a voice assistant for the car navigation. We implement our technology into their voice assistant, which could detect the emotional state of the drivers. So based on the emotional state of the drivers, the assistant can change the talk scripts as well as how they should behave, or they can provide some car infotainment contents. So, so for example, if, as often happens, the driver is getting angry, we can provide a, you know, calm music to make them oh. relax, and relax down, for instance. This will be one option. So. Okay. And when it comes to the Fujitsu, we are working with a communication robot called Unibo. We did some collaborative research to check the mental state of the elderly people or living alone. A number of the elderly people living alone are increasing, increasing here in Japan, and some of them are suffering from some mental disorders like depression. Mm. So before they go into a serious situation, we would like to detect our symptoms. Okay. So you've got over a thousand different companies and people using the API mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. So of that group, how many are, are paying customers and how many are people who are just experimenting and using the API? So we could say we have about 100 paying customers and 900 APA users are mainly just testing. Uh-huh. But we are really happy with that because we could get voice data from them as well. Right. I mean, it sounds like this is such a new technology that everyone's trying to explore and figure out what the best use of it will be. It's also on the same situation as us. We took a lot of time to find our product market fit. As a startup, uh, we have to focus on one vertical. So now we are mainly focused on a contact center. But have you thought about doing like empathic hackathons? Because this sounds like something that the developer community would have a lot of really interesting... Sure. We've already provided our API for third parties hackathon, like hosted by Mashup Hours. And this year, we are also going to have our own hackathon for our API users as well. Excellent. All right. And we'll, we'll put a link to the API on the Disrupting Japan site so the listeners can download and check it out themselves. So a lot of Disrupting Japan listeners are programmers and founders and i'm sure there'll be a huge amount of interest just perfect what do you think is is the best use of this technology i mean in in like five years or ten years what what is you know the killer app so at this moment we are mainly focused on contact centers uh, but in the future we would like to expand into the mental health care field so now a lot of people are using the voice as their interface so I think our voice will be one of the dominating interface. For instance, a lot of automobiles has already implemented Amazon Alexa or the Google Assistant. This kind of the environment with IoT things can understand the early symptom of depression or PTSD of the users in an early stage. 
So do you see empath as developing more fine-grained analysis other than just... So now we have like the big four. Yeah. Do you see empath being able to like more finely slice that up, be able to detect more subtle differences in emotion? Yeah, I think we could do that because it's a matter of the amount of the voice data. If we if we have our enough amount of the voice data, uh, we could add another emotional values, for instance, like disgusting or frustrating or whatever. But if we would like to go to mental health field, uh, we need more clinical researches, as well as uh, making some partnership with hospitals and universities uh, to conduct uh, more solid studies. Before you mentioned you have different training sets for different languages, but do you need to have different training sets for different situations? So, for example, someone who's speaking Japanese to a call center support staff might display emotions very differently than someone speaking Japanese to their doctor or at the hospital. Do, do you need different training sets? For yeah, those? I think it will happen. So when it comes to the contact center, we are mainly gathering the real contact center voice data. And when it comes to the clinical situation, we need another data set because of the difference of the context itself. So Makes it will be one challenging part for us. Yeah. Let's talk about marketing or rather than marketing just talk about letting people know you exist there's so much amazing technology being promised every day and announcements coming out constantly it's it's hard to get noticed and hard to get people to try something new so what's been your marketing and sales strategy actually we do not have marketing or and PL team here in Empress. what we did is participating in a lot of international tech conference as well as a pitch competition, which made us visible, especially in the global market. Yeah, that is interesting. You guys are doing a lot of these global pitch contests. In fact, I think you won like six of them last year, right? Eight. Eight? Okay, sorry. <laughs> but that's, that's pretty amazing. So I, I guess they were worth it. What, what, did, they, what did they lead to? We won Asian International Pitch Competition last year, uh, which lead us to a lot of the visibility, both in domestic market as well as international market. Because once you won this kind of a big pitch competition, you got uh, a lot of media coverage. And then uh, we got a lot of inquiries from our potential customers. So this is interesting because I've seen a lot of founders make the mistake of doing too many pitch contests to the point where they're almost ignoring their actual business. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So is the value you found from the pitch contest, were they contacts that you made at the event or was it contacts that came from people who read media coverage of the event? Actually, I can say both. When it comes to the people from the media coverage, we succeeded in getting a, a lot of projects with the uh, domestic big enterprises, I mean here in Japan, <laughs> Japanese big enterprises really you know, pay attention to a startup or a company who has some global you know, status. Oh, okay. So the, the exposure wasn't necessarily to the, the foreign enterprises. It was the yes. Japanese enterprises. So it's multi-directional. So is that a strategy you'd recommend for, for other startups? Uh, it depends. For instance, I'm a, one of the co-founders of this company. I'm only in charge of global marketing and sales. We also have CEO Takaki, who is mainly in charge of the domestic business development. 
So this is why I could pitch a lot. If you have just only one CEO, it will be hard to participate in a lot of pitch competition because it will waste your time. Yeah. You have to focus on your business itself. Yeah. So splitting that responsibility yeah. is what makes it work. Exactly. In that sense, probably I can say I'm in charge of PR and marketing. Right. Now, you guys have done a lot of accelerators as well, right? Mm -hmm. You did Orange Fab and uh, one in Australia mm -hmm. and, and as we talked before, the Google Launchpad. Mm -hmm. Has that been valuable? Yes, but it depends on the accelerator program, of course. But I, yeah, we can say that Google Launchpad uh, really worked uh, for us uh, because uh, we could get a lot of contact with the Googlers as well as some mentors outside of the Google and they gave us a lot of great advice. But some of accelerators just introduced uh, channels to the global market. It is also helpful because if you, you just stay in Japan, it's quite hard to get a uh, light contact of the big enterprise. It sounds like Google Launchpad was kind of the exception, but it sounds like, but in general, the accelerators are more of a, a marketing and sales function. So Google function is both in tech side as well as in business, business dev side. But for other accelerators, like Orange Farm, it's really helpful in the sense that they provided us a lot of opportunity to connect with big enterprises, including Orange in France itself. So it broadens our channel to oversee big enterprises. But some of our accelerators just providing their you know, lectures or some mentees, which didn't work sometimes. So. But we are mainly focusing on our international accelerators to expand into uh, our global markets. That, I've got to say, it's an, it's an interesting marketing and sales strategy mm -hmm. just to use the incredible interest that's built up around startups. Mm -hmm. and, and because you guys have such a fascinating story, just to use that as your main channel for marketing. I mean, it, it really speaks to how much interest there is in startups right now everywhere. Yeah, it's true. The startup situation is now really, really booming here in Japan as yeah. well. A lot of big enterprises are hosting pitch competition like accelerators or the yeah. bushes. Sometimes I cannot understand what's going on here in Japan. I, I have the same... Uh... <laughs> but some really works. Those global accelerators also help you with credibility in Japan as well? Exactly. Yeah. For instance, we intentionally sometimes use a logo of our accelerators in some exhibition and it really leads some attention from the big enterprises here in Japan. So. so you're working with large companies here in Japan and also overseas. How is enterprise sales and enterprise interaction different in Japan and in America or Australia and in the West? Of course, it really takes time to close a deal here in Japan, as everyone is yeah. talking, <laughs> as everyone says. But we already know some of the convention of how we could close a deal or how we could proceed. So we can say we're still good at dealing with some Japanese big enterprises because of our knowledge in their sales convention or sales customs here. So, so do Western enterprises move more quickly than Japanese? It depends. For instance, when it comes to the France, it's almost the same as Japan. Really? <laughs> but in the United States, it's a first there. But when it comes to you know, big tech giants, it really takes time. So it doesn't sound like it's really all that different. 
Yeah, and it's always a matter of well, whether we could meet decision maker. Yeah, I guess much more than the the company or the size of the company. It depends on the person you're talking exactly. with. Exactly, and when it comes to the you know global market like United States, it's always important to have some good mentors who could introduce some key person. For instance, uh, we have a mentor as well as advisor called Don Lindsay in Mountain View. He has a lot of context, so it really works. But with this kind of key person, it's quite hard to get into the right person. For instance, you can meet a lot of people in overseas tech conferences from Google or from Amazon or whatever. But the year, not digital makers. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, and I think that's why so many founders end up wasting their time going to lots of pitch events. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah. I guess you have to be really careful about what you select and what your objectives are. Exactly. You know, another thing that a lot of Japanese founders tell me is that when going to pitch contests overseas or just when doing business overseas, they have to almost change their personality that in america founders are expected to be really energetic and make crazy claims and predictions but in japan founders are expected to be a little more calm and reasonable has that been your experience i don't think so sometimes people told me that you should behave like in a western way but it doesn't make sense because now, in any part of the world, including Silicon Valley, they already saw a lot of people with different backgrounds, with different nationalities, so they know, you know how different people are. So they don't care whether we are Japanese or not, but they care about our business model or how, what kind of attraction we already get. Of course, we need some storytelling, but I think we do not need much performance. Okay. So, well, that's good to hear, actually. The, the performance aspect gets a little tiring both to do and to listen to sometimes. Or we can say now the world is getting tired of kind of a westernized, <laughs> standing out way of pitching. It, it does get a little old quickly, yes. Yeah. yeah, it's just a you know, matter of the performance. Right. <laughs> so you, your style in Japan and in the U.S. is very similar? I can say so, yeah. All right, that's excellent. And maybe it speaks to the kind of person you're talking to. Perhaps someone that's closer to a decision maker is going to be looking more at the facts and the business model. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And someone who's just attending a conference. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> but in any sense, whether the people we are talking with is from Japanese big enterprises or American big enterprises, the important thing is just to be confident about your business. Some people, especially, for, I mean, Japanese people, seems not confident about their solution sometimes. Of course, it is not true, but... That's a really important distinction, I think. Yeah. So you can be very confident and very calm. We should, or yeah. I should. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to be exciting and making crazy claims to sound confident. Exactly. You don't have to be an actor to make some presentation in front of some decision makers but you have to be confident hey listen Hazumu be before we wrap up I want to ask you what I call my magic wand question mm -hmm. and that is 
If I gave you a magic wand and I told you that you could change one thing about Japan, anything at all, the education system, the way people think about risk, the way VCs invest money, anything at all to make things better for startups and innovation in Japan, what would you change? I would change the mindset of the people or every people participating in the startup ecosystem here in Japan because sometimes I feel we are so concentrating on domestic market, only the domestic market and domestic people compared to some other East Asian countries like Taiwan or Korea, which has to focus on the global market from the day one.、Mm. We have some disadvantages because of their communication as well as some because of the mindset, as I mentioned. Do you think the most important thing is looking at global markets for sales or looking at global markets to understand what other companies are doing or what kind of innovations are coming out? So I think it's not a matter of you know, expanding into the global market itself, but it's a matter of how we could broaden our mind. Just comparing our own culture with other ones. So, understanding what's going on in the world,、exactly. learning from it. Exactly. And we don't have to take everything from overseas. But it's always important for us to compare our own culture with another one. Because that will make you find what kind of specific characteristics we could use as a Japanese startup. So, you don't think Japanese founders are doing that right now? Some of them are just focusing on their domestic market, which is not a bad thing because this is a great thing for Japan to have kind of a mature ecosystem or a mature market.、Uh, but if you could get access to other information sources from overseas, probably a lot of founders could try alternative strategy of PR or marketing. For instance, as I mentioned, A lot of startups are, of course, wasting time by participating in a lot of pitch competition. But if you have some separate functions in your startup, probably you can take advantage of the opportunity of the pitch competition as a place for the PR and marketing. This is one of the aspects I learned from international startups. I found is they take advantage of every opportunity for the PR and marketing. They don't care about whether they lose the competition or not. Of course, probably some of them are wasting money on time, but I found it's quite interesting strategy. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It has both sides, both sides of the coin. So, for Japanese startup founders who are looking overseas, what is it they should be looking for?、Uh, so, one of the best thing would be not finding partners or not finding customers. But make a lot of founder friends. Oh, okay. It will be one of the great things for Japanese entrepreneurs to broaden their own mind, to communicate, or to make friendships with our international <coughs> founders. Because there is some interesting research based on Startup Genome Report,、uh, which says entrepreneurs who have a lot of connection with international entrepreneurs made more exit than entrepreneurs just you know communicating with. Domestic entrepreneurs. What was that in Japan, or was that everywhere? Everywhere, everywhere.、Oh. Yeah. For instance, Tel Aviv. I mean, Israel is now quite famous as a startup nation, and a lot of Israeli startup founders have a connection 
uh, with entrepreneurs overseas in Silicon Valley or some European major cities like Berlin or Paris. Actually, that makes sense, though, especially, I mean, any business that is based on innovation and change will benefit from exposing itself to different ideas and different points of view. Yeah, so if Japanese startup fund is just, you know, hanging out with Japanese entrepreneurs, it doesn't blow in your mind. Yeah, in business-wise, in business-wise, of course, you yeah. can get a lot of information from them as well. Like how we could raise money from Japanese VCs or whatever. In that sense, it will be worse. But if you like to have more alternative options, it will be great to communicate with you know, international entrepreneurs. Do you think that's changing now? Do you see more and more Japanese startup founders doing the same thing? Probably, yeah, I think so. Because now we could get a lot of support from Japanese government sectors to attend an international tech conference. And then you can you know, meet and talk with a lot of entrepreneurs. And well, that's great. We'll, we'll see Japanese startups becoming more and more global. In mindset sense, as I said, I don't think Japanese startup has to... <laughs> Go expand into the global market. Uh, but the way of thinking. Right? Yeah, it's just a matter of the way of thinking. Okay. Okay, Hazuma, thank you so much for sitting down with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you it. so much. And we're back. I've always cautioned founders against doing too many pitch competitions. And there's a few startups I know where the time the founder spent pitching was one of the reasons for the failure of those startups. But Hazumo and Empath has made it work not only by being very selective about the competitions they participate in, but far more important, by not having the CEO doing the pitching so that he can focus on actually building the business. Now that's admirable. Pitching your vision to a large crowd that understands it and appreciates it is incredibly fun and rewarding. It's exciting. I don't think most startup CEOs, myself included, I don't think most startup CEOs could put their egos aside and let someone else have that spotlight. It also helps that Empath has the kind of technology that really stands out at pitch events. It's something genuinely new and potentially transformative. And let's, let's talk about that. Now, Nothing empath does is emotional manipulation. Empath detects our emotion. It doesn't try to influence it. But let's look where this is heading. By using their technology in call centers, they found that people are more likely to buy something when they feel sad or anxious. So does this mean that companies will try to increase their profits by increasing the amount of sadness and anxiety in the world? Well, yes. Yes. That's exactly what it means. That's how capitalism works. It's important to realize, however, that this is not new. Modern marketing, from its very start about a hundred years ago, has always tried to not only capitalize on our existing fears and anxieties, but to give us new fears and anxieties that could be alleviated by buying their products. So we're used to this kind of manipulation. But things are going to get a lot more subtle from here on out. 
At the moment, Siri is a fun, artificially intelligent assistant that helps us get some simple tasks done. Giving her the ability to understand our emotions would probably make Siri more fun and more effective. But at some point, Siri might start pushing us to make App Store purchases. And here things start to get a bit gray. But hey, rather than speculating about what others might do with Empath's technology, try it for yourself. There's a link to their API sign-up on the Disrupting Japan site, and you can try it out for free. In the end, technology is what we, the innovators and the creators, make of it. The question of whether new technology makes the world better or worse, well, the answer is up to us. If you want to talk more about AI and human-machine understanding, Hazuma and I would love to hear from you. So come by disruptingjapan.com slash show 143 and let's talk. If you leave a comment at the site, I guarantee you at least one of us, and probably both, will respond. And if you get the chance, check us out on LinkedIn or Facebook. But, but even better, if you like the show, tell people about it. Disrupting Japan has grown not by social media marketing or advertising, but because listeners like you enjoy it, and they tell their friends about it. But most of all, Thanks for listening, and thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups and innovation know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.